Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today was 10 days postnatal and having a quiet drink with a friend when she experienced crushing central chest pain. Here to tell us what happened next is Nisha Parks. Nisha Parks, I'm delighted to have you on the show today. It's fantastic that we were able to connect. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted as well. I'm glad to be here with your audience. Let's get straight into it. 2008 was a very bad year for the world. It was the year of the global financial crisis. But for you, 2008 has a lot more significance. Do you want to talk about the day before whatever it was that happened, happened to you? Well, I was 10 days postpartum from having my son, who's 14 years old now. And I was feeling just kind of cooped up in the house. So I called a friend and I asked a friend if she would just take me out to McDonald's to have a Diet Coke. So that was fully my intent. My son was 10 days old and we went to the McDonald's. You know, as I was finishing up my Diet Coke and she was finishing up hers, I started to feel this feeling of doom. There's really no other way to describe it other than a feeling of doom. I went to the restroom. I told my friend, I said, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm, I want to go to the restroom and then I'd like for you to take me home. So, of course, she, she said, OK, and I, I went to the restroom, still really feeling like this just must be the postpartum blues, really just feeling like I was just going to go home and just rest it off. Perhaps I was just tired from just having a 10 day old baby and maybe I got out too early. So I went to the restroom and I'm not a sweater. So when I went to wash my hands after leaving the restroom, I looked in the mirror and I was sweating profusely. I'm that girl that even has, when I'm on the treadmill, I have the fan right in front of me so I, you know, so I don't sweat. So I knew at that point that there was something significantly wrong. I don't know. There was just a knowing because prior to me going into the bathroom, I felt this feeling of doom. So when I paired that with the sweating profusely, I thought, okay, this is something more serious than what I think it is. And I shouldn't just go home and go to bed. So I went out to my friend and I said to her, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I'm sick. I am very sick. And at that moment, I had a friend who she and I came into education together. And her husband had several heart attacks. He was a fairly young gentleman and had several heart attacks. And I had not spoken to her for several years, but immediately my mind went to the last conversation that he and I had. And he said to me, when I was at the, when I had my first heart attack, I was at the ball field and I felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. So my mind took me there. I like to say it was, it was God took me there and immediately I thought, oh my goodness, I am having a heart attack. This would not be on my mind unless it was something significant. So I walked over to my friend and I said, I need you to listen to me very carefully. I'm sick. I'm very sick. And I need you to call 911. And I'll be honest with you, that that was the last thing that I remember for several, several months. So what was happening to me then at that time, during that time, I was having a pulmonary embolism. 
which are common, you know, after childbirth. So I, I, I had a, I was having a blood clot. They say the clot was the size of a fist, and it had lodged in my lungs. And they were able to get the EMTs there. And from what I am told by my family, I was up after a you know a, a couple of days. They were treating me with an anticoagulant and several other things, and I was still experiencing this serious chest pain. And my mother said, because my husband was home with our 10-day-old baby, so my mother and my sister, they were with me, and they said, I kept complaining of chest pain, just this terrible chest pain like nothing that I had ever experienced before. So they kind of nagged the doctors, and here's where I say that we should always be our own advocate, right? Because I knew during that time that there was something else going on, that it whatever happened when I was at McDonald's, and, and this is all based on what my family was telling me, because I don't recall any of this experience. I'll go on later to share that I ended up in a coma, but I don't recall that experience. But in that moment, I was chatting with my mom, telling her something is wrong. So she called the cardiologist and he said that that clot was so big, she's just experiencing the residual effects of the clot breaking up. She's not having, this is completely normal. The clot was so large that she should not have made it. And this is just residual, but I'm going to do a cardiac cath just to satisfy you, if you will. And that's exactly what happened. And he did share with my family right before cathing me that there is a small percent chance that it could be something called spontaneous coronary artery dissection. I don't think that it's that that's normally caught in elderly women or elderly individuals after death. And I really don't think that that's what this is, but I have to share with you that it may be a possibility. I'm 99.9% sure that this is the residual of the pulmonary embolism. And so he went in and he could not perform the cardiac cath because as soon as he got in, he saw that my arteries were dissecting. They were peeling like a banana, just dissecting. They were just dissecting. So he came out and my mom and my sister said he was kind of all bloody then and just floored. And he said, the one thing that I thought it wasn't, it was she has to go to open heart surgery now. And I did. And so there was a surgeon on call. He and I, we often chat and we all also do public speaking together because he was not ready for this either, but he took on the task. And before he did, he said to my family that she's really sick. And this is very rare. It's like she's been hit by a train and we're going to take the chance that she's going to recover from being ran over by a car. And he said, but I, I will take it. And so he went in and I coded right after I asked him not to let me die. And I was out for about 28 minutes. So he says that his commitment to me, because I made him promise that he would not let me die. You know, I talked to him about my kids and immediately I coded right after that. And so 
he left my chest cavity open and he went out to my family and said, listen, she's got about a 2% chance of making it. I'm going to leave her chest cavity open and I'm going to call around for her to get a heart and we're going to try to get a heart transplant. But it, I, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that it's t- you should prepare. You should prepare for her untimely demise. And I stayed in a coma for about three to four weeks. But after about two weeks of that coma, my ejection fraction started to improve. He did He did do a triple bypass and left my chest cavity open and tried to find me a heart. They had a heart here, here in, in Georgia, but they told him they that I was not a candidate because I my brain had gone without oxygen for so long and the sub, the the chance of, of me surviving and living a productive normal life would be so rare that someone else would benefit from the heart and so he said he had a friend at Emory who owed him a, a favor he he called that person never heard back from that person but he did hear from Colorado and they did have a heart but he had to airlift me and so he he says, and he tells this story himself, that he had to do some real soul searching and rely on his expertise and also his experience with patients to decide if I would make it to Colorado. And he knew that I would die en route. So he, it was, I was going to die at home or I was going to die in Colorado. And he put all his skills and all of his background and knowledge in terms of cardiology and surgery and in in the basket of me staying here. And so he left my chest cavity open and after several weeks, my ejection fraction started to improve and he was able to close my chest cavity up, but I remained in a coma, of course, a medically induced coma for a couple of more weeks. And after about going into that fourth week, I was, uh, they kept trying to bring me out of the coma and I would get upset and they would have to put me back in. But finally, we reached a point to where my ejection fraction was strong enough and I was able to begin the road to coming back to my family and starting my road to recovery. So you didn't get a heart transplant. You made it on your Mm -hmm. own. No, sir. I did not get a heart transplant. I made it on my own. There was a heart available. But I later learned that that heart went to a young mother of three. So I didn't get a heart. I got the triple bypass and a lot, a lot of meds. My life changed that day for a number of reasons. So 10 days prior to that, my life changed because I added a newborn. I introduced a newborn into my life. But then 10 days after that, my entire world just shattered. And I've been working with the grace of God and excellent, excellent physicians, cardiologists to put my life back together again and to share my story of recovery and also my story of rare disease and what it takes to to put your life back together again with a very particular audience. You had this persistent chest pain, which was being explained away as the effects of a pulmonary embolism. It's a clot in your lungs. Yes. It'll get better. You just need to relax. It'll be fine. But your instincts were that there was something not right. 
And right. so the cardiologist comes along and says that this is not a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, a very rare condition, but I'll go ahead and do the thing anyway. Had he not done that, you wouldn't be here to tell the story. Absolutely. I would be dead. I would not be here to tell the story. You're exactly right. And one thing that I know, as I was prior to this, did not have any cardiac history. There's no cardiac disease in my family. I've not had any experience with just having issues with heart disease or any of those things. But one thing that I was always an advocate for myself in terms of any of my physicians, and it was a partnership. So in order to have a partnership, you should be knowledgeable about the person and you should be involved. And so that is what I extended to any person who provided me care. And that is what I tried to extract from them as well. And so because of that, I believe that knowing the symptoms and being in a situation where I was actively involved in my health care, I respected my own body enough to listen to it. And that tenacity and that just holding on to this is what I know about me. This is what I know about what I'm experiencing. This is not what I experienced because I know enough about myself and my own health care that I was able to communicate that to my family and not accept anything other than let's try to figure this out. We, we, we can't explain this away because this is not who and what I should be experiencing right now. So to your point, had not my, my mom and my sister, had not they been as persistent with the cardiologist to say, she's saying this and she's communicating this about her body and we have to act on it, I would be dead. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Nisha, that's a key message that we're hearing not just from you, but from a whole range of patient advocates, people who've survived in incredible circumstances, having faith in yourself, having faith in your own experience and very respectfully advocating for yourself in a way that gets people to look again at what might be going on in this situation. It's like going to the detective and saying, I know there's something not right. I don't quite know what it is, but this doesn't fit the picture. The puzzle isn't right. You need to do some more investigating. There's something not right here. Test. It doesn't pass the smell test. Absolutely. What was this like for you? You were in coma. Your family must have been in disarray. You had this little one at home, not with his mom. So how was the experience for your family? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. So as I mentioned earlier, I had a 10-day baby when the ordeal started. So I was in the hospital for several months. When I came home, my son was almost two months old. So my family, basically, my husband was here with the baby. Another thing that I don't remember, my husband said I made him promise 
to stay home with the baby. I didn't want anybody else to take care of the baby. So he would stay with our baby and then he would come and visit me at night. So it was extremely hard for him because not that it is uncommon for men to be providers and, and nurturers and things of that nature. But my husband, we ha- we switched roles. He took on the role of mom to an infant, whereas that was not something that he was accustomed to and that he had normally done. So it was, it was a struggle for him. And then also my wife here is, you know, the mother to this newborn is in a coma and I can't go see her. I can't ask her what needs to be done. I've got to figure it out. So we had that going on at home. And then we had my mom and my sister basically put a room on one of the floors in the hospital and they lived there. They lived there. My mom was actively working. My sister was actively in school and they dropped everything to be there for me because the surgeon really said, this is touch and go. She's made it, but she's going to need the support of family. She's going to need someone here at all times. So he was able to arrange for them to actually get a room in the hospital. So I had 24-hour care. He would encourage them to talk to me, although I was in a coma, you know, speak to me. Just imagine that I was there speaking with them. And I, I don't recall a whole lot of that when I was in, in the coma. But what I can tell you is that there were bits and pieces once I did come back to my family that I did remember. They seemed so vaguely familiar. And these were things that were occurring during the time I was in the coma. And so for many months, my sister and my mother committed themselves to being with me during my recovery while I was in the hospital. And so it was very difficult for them because they're not medical expertise, right? That's not their field. Well, my sister is a a respiratory therapist, but that's not, that wasn't their field. In this situation, they became family, right? And so it was extremely difficult for them, especially to watch a young person and who was otherwise healthy, no cardiac issues, almost succumb. So taking care of a person who's been through a traumatic experience, a life-altering death, if you will, experience, death, deadly experience, is traumatic for the family as well especially given the fact that there are no precursors. There was nothing that there was nothing to prepare them that, you know, the train was coming and it was about to run over me and they were going to be the ones that would have to, along with the physicians and the cardiologists and the surgeon, they were going to have to be the ones to, to help me stand because I couldn't stand by myself. It has changed the perspective of, anyone who's been connected to me in that area, because we have the situation where my family had provided me with and was able to provide me with support so that I would have be able to have access once I did come out of the coma and start to rebuild. But then after that comes the reality for me of dealing with this disease and then the re- reality for them of dealing with this new person 
that has this disease. And so it is a recovery is a process. I always say that hope is a person, but recovery is a process. We can have hope, but recovery is going to take time. And it's not just for the patient. It's for everyone who's connected to the patient, especially when it's something that is so traumatic. Clearly, you didn't do this on your own. You had to have that support. You had to have your husband stepping up to the plate and your family right there as your cheerleader, your supporter, your guide, your counsel. And in fact, when you were in coma, also your company. How's everybody now? Here we are in 2023. It is wonderful to see you looking so well. I would never know that you'd had any of these experiences. What is it like for all of you? So I'll speak for myself now. I have been, as I stated earlier, it was, I had a life-changing event being that I introduced the newborn into my life. And and then 10 days after that, I had a, a, a death experience. And so what I have been experiencing since then is getting to know myself, the new me, getting to know what I should expect for myself, being able to accept the things that I can't change. I can't go back and undo this traumatic event. But what I can do, though, is use my platform to share my experience so that other young women who who've experienced childbirth or women who've experienced similar situation or men, anybody for that, for that, because SCAD is not married to just women. It doesn't just occur in women, it occurs in men as well. And so to share my experience so, so that they don't brush off those symptoms, number one, so that they advocate for themselves, number two, and so that they understand that life doesn't have to be what individuals project it to be. And so I've taken my experience from from my own perspective. I'm a member of SCAD Alliance, and that has been a tremendous platform for me to share with individuals who have SCAD. I serve on the board of directors there, and we are all about educating and empowering individuals who go through SCAD. And if they don't make it through SCAD than their families? How do we support the children? How do we regain our lives while we're supporting the individual who is no longer here or is here and needs our support? So I have been living as a SCAD survivor and then using my platform to make sure that I am helping others to become aware of heart disease, what it looks like in young people, what it looks like, what SCAD can can be like in men and women, and then also my family as well, telling their story because it's not just my story. My cardiologist, my, my church family, everyone who's connected to me has a story. And this is not a plug for my book, but it is. I say it's my book, but it's everyone that, again, that was connected to me a couple of years after that. It's my story called The Heart Feels First. 
And it is a book that tells my story from a doctor's perspective, from my OBGYN's perspective, from a cardiologist's perspective. My parents, everyone is telling my clergy, the people that I sought for spiritual guidance, everyone telling my story from their perspective. And it's a conversational book, but it's so powerful. You know why? Because it's so raw and it's so real. There is not a person who goes through an experience that has changed their lives in a significant way that doesn't understand or connect to someone who's in that book. And so my family, they're living, you know, they're, they're living like survivors of a person connected to a person who's had a death or near-death experience. And I'm thankful that they continue to educate themselves and be there for me and support me because life did never, never went back to the way it was before. The one thing that occurred to me as you were talking is that this experience is true for not just patients who've had spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, but any other life-threatening illness, whether that be cancer or heart, other heart disease, infections. We know that people have been in intensive care with COVID, for example, and, and survived that because all of these experiences have resonance with what you've just said. Yes, I absolutely agree with you and can attest to it, it, exactly that statement that, that you've made because when you go through something that changes your body from the inside out, what attacks your body is what attacks your body, right? And so the tools that you use in partnership with, with those who are helping to support you and to treat you, they really are different tools, but they're treating whatever it is that attacks your body. And so the process of recovery and the process of going through a situation that has attacked you and caused trauma in your life is very similar, regardless of what it is that caused the trauma. And, and you know, you hear people talk about trauma triggers all the time. Well, my trigger may be different from yours, but it is that because we've experienced COVID or because we've experienced cancer or because we're living on the other side of things, the process of becoming whole and whole means different things for different people. Those steps, that journey is very, very similar no matter what experience you have. And I do encourage everyone to be an active participant regardless of what it is that has attacked them or what it is that has come upon them and they're having to deal with in their lives now that is a traumatic illness or a capacitating illness, anything of that nature. It is very, very similar. Neshe, where can people find out more about your work? How can we support you? Where can we connect with you? Thank you for asking. So my website is up at nashaparks.com. The name of my podcast is The Heart Matters Podcast. It's streaming on all different platforms. I am also can be found on Facebook, The Heart Matters with Dr. P on Facebook. All of my handles are really the heart matters with Dr. P and heart matters is not only heart dealing with my condition, but any condition that has impacted us, any chronic illness, it's a heart matter, right? It's a heart matter because we have to have the tenacity in the heart, not the actual heart that's pumping 
in, in our bodies, but we have to have the heart to be able to transform our lives and to rediscover who we are in this current role that we've been placed in because of that condition. So again, I can be found on SCAD Alliance at, on Facebook. I'm on the board of directors there. We have the ISCAD, Re ISCAD registry that we've just gotten off and we are excited about that. It is building a wide range of patients who with partnered with, with doctors, great doctors who can study our cases and provide formative, effective feedback and treatment for individuals like me. Catherine Leon is the founder of this organization. John Novak, I think, is a is is a is a mutual friend of ours. That's how I met John. But SCAD Alliance is doing amazing things. And I would just encourage any any survivor that's a SCAD survivor to check out our resources and everything that we have on our website, as well as my website. Nisha Brox, it's been a great honor spending time with you. You're a powerhouse of energy. You clearly have a great deal of wisdom in what you've acquired in the last little while. We wish you ongoing health and great happiness. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I look forward to speaking with you again. And I appreciate it. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.